you're listening to The Daily American. Now here's your host, Dan the Man. We're back with The Daily American. We are back with Mr. Richard James, Green Beret. For the civilians out there, Green Beret, I mean, I don't know, movie-wise, it's equivalent to the the John J. Rambos. I'm sure you guys have seen those movies. Um, I'm sure Mr. James doesn't like being compared to that. It's a lot of Hollywood. However... We're back with Mr. James, and we're going to do a quick summary of, of, the, of the first part of this phenomenal interview. Mr. James grew up uh, very early ages, learning to adapt and overcome based off the fact that his father was in the Navy Reserves and he was moving all over the world. He didn't really have um, a quote-unquote home. Eventually, after traveling the world, living in Ireland, Sweden, Pennsylvania, it's where the Daily American is from. He was only here for one year. He went out to, to California where... He ended up graduating high school, running track, and then he went into San Jose State where the basketball coach, he, he sprouted up. He grew a few inches. Obviously, he ran track. He had the natural athletic capabilities, and the San Jose coach saw something in him. Now, he wasn't the best basketball player, um, but he saw something in him. It happens to be that that San Jose State basketball coach was actually a Green Beret. And again, these are the elite of the elite. Um, there's not many of them there there's, there's 12 per team, but to become a, a, a green beret, a, you know, it, it's few and far between and not anybody could just say, Oh, I want to become a green beret and I want to do special forces and just go do it. It takes a special, a special somebody to, to do what this man has done. We left off with Mr. James in Ethiopia. There was a Somali Ethiopian conflict. He had trained up for a while. He learned the language. Um, Spent spent lots of time uh, figuring out the cultural norms over there to make sure there was no disrespect from from him and his fellow Green Berets to the to the local Ethiopian community. And we we left off at the exact point where he's in his class A's, his dress uniform, and he's in a palace that the Ethiopian prime minister. I'm not sure if that's exactly what they're considered, but he invited him over, um, and that's where we left off, Mr. James. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we were formed up in this uh, square in the uh, hotel, and those red Chinese acrobats were there, and we were wearing our green berets, our jump boots, our Class A uniforms, the whole works, and there were all these Chinese hanging out the window taking photographs of us. Well, needless to say, it was no longer after that considered to be a secret mission because we had been found out. So uh, we were finally told by our uh, commander that we could now tell anybody we wanted where we were and what we were doing there, or, or at least not what we were doing there, but where we were. So we were able to write home and, and tell him, oh, by the way, I'm in Ethiopia. So after a few days of briefings, et cetera, we were finally told where our team was going to go. There were four A teams. Ours was one of them. Now, it ended up that ours was going to be sent to the far south of Ethiopia, near the Kenya and the Somali border. And it also turned out that we were going to be nowhere near any of the other teams. They were all going to be up north. So we were going to be kind of an act by ourselves out there. Uh, we were going to be advising and training 
a brigade of Ethiopian troops who were involved not only in the Somali border war, but also in the Congo uh, as United Nations peacekeepers. So we finally were sent down to a place called Nigeli. Nigeli was a small village in the middle of nowhere, but there was also a, an Ethiopian army base uh, next to the village itself. And that is where the troops were that we were going to be working with. We had, uh, we had already been told that they had found a house for us. So when we flew down there and, and landed on the, what we call the Nigeli International Airport, it was a dirt strip. There were no hangars, no nothing there, just, just a dirt strip and a, uh, a flag there so you could tell the direction of the wind, a wind sock. So we landed there and our, our things were transported to the house. The house was a three bedroom small house. And uh, what they did was they put two of the men in one bedroom both of them were the radio operators, so their radio equipment could be in that room. And then two of the other higher ranking NCOs uh, in another bedroom and our commanding officer and executive officer in the other bedroom. And the other six of us were crowded into the small living room in the front of the house. So that's where we were going to live for six months. Uh, there was a bathroom there, but because there was no running water, no sewer, it, that's all it was was the bathroom. And the only, uh, we could take a dump there and that, that was about it. We could shower there. There was a shower facility, but the shower was a foot pump operated shower. And it came from the water that was in a jerry can, a five gallon jerry can. So it wasn't even heated. So that's how we took our showers. Uh, there was no running water in the town. The water was all gathered from a well that was in the middle of a cow pasture. Not necessarily the cleanest water you could hope for. In fact, we had to be careful not to step on cow patties while we were pulling the water out of the well. And you, most people think of a well as something that has a, a brick wall around it. Ours didn't. It was just a hole in the ground, period. So uh, what we did was we, we lowered a, a jerry can by rope into the water, pulled it up, lowered another one down, pulled it up, and that's, that's how we got our water. And uh, in order to make it drinkable, the medics had to add all sorts of chemicals that made it taste like crap. So we, what we did was we learned how to add tang, which was a powdered orange mix in with the water and that's how we at least got a little bit of decent taste out of the water. Uh, also, uh, as far as electricity went, there was no electricity except at night and that was only for about three hours a night and that's when the generator for the town worked and that was the only time it worked because uh, they had problems. They had an old World War II generator that broke down all the time. And what happened was usually a cog would break. And thankfully, our people were able to come up with an idea of how to form 
a piece of wood to replace that cog, although it wouldn't last very long. It made points with the villagers because they could use that wooden cog and it would at least hold out for a little while until they could finally get a cog from Germany. And of course, the village didn't have enough money to have equipment on hand. So they couldn't keep stuff like that on hand. They, they waited until they broke down until they ordered from Germany. So we spent a lot of time without electricity in that town. Uh, we also did not have garbage pickup. We, our garbage pit was dug in the backyard of the property we were on. And uh, all our garbage was dumped into that. Now, we had a very modern garbage system. During the day, the vultures would get down there and they would eat up what garbage they wanted. And then at night, the hyenas would come in and we could hear them laughing while they were munching on the garbage that we had in the pit. But voila, the next morning, no garbage in the pit. So that was our garbage pickup. The only way we had for heating things, which included a, an iron for, uh, for pressing our clothes, we had a, uh, an iron that was uh, operated through the use of coal. And coal was how we also uh, heated our food. So once a week, we had a delivery van come by to deliver our coal. The delivery van was a camel. And he would come onto our property and he would kneel down and we would get all the charcoal we needed off of that camel. So those were the comforts of home that we had in Nigeli, Ethiopia, our little village. Now, there were three battalions of Ethiopians who were supposedly assigned to that outpost at Nigeli. One of the battalions was always on the Somali border. Another battalion was always uh, in the Congo, acting as peacekeepers for the United Nations. And the other battalion was always there at the outpost itself. So what we did, we, we set up a, a, uh, a scenario where we worked with one battalion at a time, trained them for a couple of months, then they would switch with one of the battalions that was in uh, the Congo or the Somali border, and we'd start training them. So that's, that's how the training went. We never actually were involved in the war itself as far as uh, being on the border and, and firing at the Somalis. But everywhere we went, we were always fully armed and there was always a bullet in the chamber ready because uh, we were close enough to the Somali border where there was no telling if there might not be a, a Somali uh, nearby ready to ambush us. Uh, in fact, shortly after we arrived there, we did find out that a price had been placed on our head. So anybody that killed us would, would be able to reap a reward for our death. So that was another reason to, to keep armed. And uh, a big part of the problem in Ethiopia was the shifters. The shifters were bandits and they were known to ambush vehicles on the only road that we had through town which by the way was a, a dirt road that would, here in the United States, we'd figure that that would, might make a halfway decent road on someone's farm. And that was it. 
And in fact, during the rainy season, nobody could go anywhere because the road was too muddy to travel and aircraft couldn't fly. So we couldn't get supplies that way either. Mr. James, what exactly is a shifter? A shipment? A shift. Oh, you were saying shipments? Shifter. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Shifters were bandits. That was the name for the bandits. Understood. They they roamed throughout Ethiopia, but they were especially bad uh, on the road south of Negeli. In fact, anytime vehicles went on that road, they had to wait for a, an armed convoy that uh, was to escort them either to the Kenya border or to the Somali border, which was very rare because nobody wanted to get into that area. But uh, to even to the uh, Kenya border, they had to have an armed escort. Otherwise, they could have been ambushed by these bandits who traveled in large groups. Uh, we found out very early that just knowing Amharic, which was the uh, Ethiopian language, and we knew it well enough to be able to converse in it, but just knowing that didn't necessarily mean we could converse with people. Uh, it so happened in Ethiopia, there are approximately 100 different tribes, and each tribe has its own language. So if you ran across a tribesman, you weren't able to communicate with that individual, and even some Ethiopians couldn't. So it did cause problems at times, but that was about it. And then uh, the only way we could get good food, fresh food, was to hunt for it. And even though a lot of the time we were there was out of hunting season, Haile Selassie had given us permission to hunt anytime we needed to for food. So we went out on hunting expeditions. It was almost like being paid to be on a safari. We'd usually go out uh, two at a time in a vehicle out in the boonies and, and go hunting. Uh, the, the usual fare was to hunt for kudu or dukers, uh, which were miniature deer. And uh, also, uh, there were a lot of guinea fowl there. So that was another meal that we had. And one time we even got to have a wild pig. Uh, uh, Our demolition sergeant had gone on a hunting expedition with a local village uh, or district chief. And the district chief was carrying a Thompson submachine gun. And Smitka, our demolition sergeant, had his M1 Garand. That, in fact, is what we had for weapons, was M1 Garands for a rifle. And we also had military issue 45s as a sidearm. They spotted this this pig. They both got out of the vehicle, the Jeep, at the same time. Smitka started firing. He emptied his entire clip of eight rounds into the bore as it was charging. And the district chief took his Thompson submachine gun and emptied the magazine into the the charging bore and finally killed it. So it's good eats. Yeah. Back day, they brought it back to the team house and took all the bullets and all the ticks out of the, the bore. By the way, there were a lot of ticks there. 
a lot of ticks, a lot of ants, you name it, all around the place. And there were some poisonous snakes, although I never ran across one, thankfully. We did, out of every two-month session with the uh, battalion we were working with, we spent two weeks out in the field, which was very interesting. Uh, but thankfully, we never run and ran across enemy, any enemy soldiers. We were never fired upon. We never had to fire on anybody else. One team did, they, but they didn't realize they'd been ambushed until they had already gotten through the ambush. That's how poor the ambush had been set up by whoever it was that set it up. Uh, I ended up getting a one of those duker, the miniature deer, as a pet. It was a little baby, and uh, a tribesman was walking by wanting to sell him, and I, I bought him, and I fell in love with that little thing. He, I tried to bring him back to the States, but uh, the Air Force wouldn't let me transport him to back to the States, so I had to give him to somebody else, but he was fun to have. <coughs> Another team had a cheetah for a pet, and they tried to bring it back to the States, uh, it was decided finally when at our stop in uh, Spain that the Air Force was not going to fly it all the way to the States. So it was offloaded in Spain and uh, the Manila Zoo ended up getting it for a, a, an animal in a zoo. It's, that's something the, uh, our special forces always had were some sort of a pet, whether it be a cat, a dog or whatever. We always had to have a a pet to keep us entertained. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. But we ended up uh, in the hole. We, we spent seven months in Ethiopia. It was a fun time. We were getting paid per diem of $17 a day with no place to spend it. So uh, when we finally came back from the United States in November of 64, uh, I ended up buying a used Volkswagen Bug for a car my first ever car. I used the money I had made while I was in Ethiopia to buy it. I, when we got back, it was uh, 1964, the end of 64. My uh, time limit for being in the military was three years for my enlistment. It was supposed to be up in February. I, I decided at the last minute, I really like what I'm doing. So I re-enlisted. Uh, when we got back to the States, uh, we were transferred, almost all of us, to a new Special Forces unit, the third Special Forces group. Each Special Forces group usually has an area of the world that they are responsible for. At first, when the sixth was formed, it was Africa, the Middle East, and the Near East. Uh, when that became too much for the sixth, too many missions for the sixth to handle, they formed a third. And the third took over Africa. And since we had been in Africa, when we got back to the States, most of us were transferred to the third special forces group. Also at that time, special forces decided that it, the team member was no longer going to be a demolition sergeant or a demolition specialist, but an engineer sergeant or engineer specialist. Uh, when I came back, I was a, a buck sergeant, a sergeant E5. I was sent to uh, Fort Belvoir, Virginia, to attend the United States Army Engineer NCO School. So I went out there and I learned all about engineering. 
I learned how to build a bridge that I could later blow up myself. So it was it was interesting. They covered some things that we never use in special forces, like bulldozers and things like that that special forces teams never had. But oh well, we we got that training. It was if I remember correctly, it was a four month school, three or four month school. I graduated from that, got back to United or back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and uh, one of my first things that I was able to do was get on a team. Well, actually not a team. I was, I was placed on a team, but some of us were uh, picked to take some special forces reserve people out on their summer training. And we took them to Colorado for two weeks of training in the Rocky mountains. And that was a lot of fun. I was, I was there and as an advisor and a, teacher again to uh, make sure they were doing things right. After getting back from that, I uh, was placed on a what they call a demonstration team. And Special Forces has always had a demonstration team. It's a 12-man A-team that uh, basically goes around showing what Special Forces does. And I was selected. We were, we were selected because of our knowledge in the field and also our language. Because I knew Amharic, and that was a strange language, I was one of the choices so I could come out in my spiel and say, and I speak Amharic. And that, that was to make us sound pretty good, that we knew everything in the world. And, uh, Meanwhile, so, I've never even heard of Amharic before. So you yeah. know it's something very rare. Yeah, and uh, demonstration team, if any of you have seen the, uh, the movie, The Green Berets, you've seen in the beginning of the movie where that demonstration team stands up and talks about what each one of them does, the language that they speak, etc. And uh, I was on that team as a demolitions specialist. So I, we, during the time I was on that team, we went to two different places. We went to, uh, oh, I forget the name of the fort now, uh, a fort up north I went to, and the team gave a, a uh, demonstration to a bunch of officers who were graduating from an officer's course there. And then the next one I went to was the Texas State Fair in Dallas. Uh, and one of my spiels, I got up and started speaking and and the spiel was all, always a spiel first in your foreign language and then in English. And I had seen these two Ethiopian officers back in the back in the crowd in of all places, Texas. And I immediately piped out with the nice feeling the amazing interview with Mr. Richard James, Vietnam veteran Green Beret. Please turn, tune in the next couple weeks to hear the, the rest of his story. It's a phenomenal one. Make sure you guys are tuning in. I appreciate all the listeners out there around the world. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.